What's up, y'all, and welcome into the Jack Vita Show. I am your host, as always, Jack Vita. Today we have a very fun episode coming out that we are taping today on Tuesday, August 22nd, 2023. Reading the date, I just cannot believe that we're already at this point in the season. We've got a little less than six weeks left. Uh, and one of the great disappointments of this season has been the San Diego Padres, a team with a historically high payroll for their organization, one of three highest payrolls in Major League Baseball. In fact, the teams entering the season with the three highest payrolls are all on track to miss the playoffs. Yankees, Mets, Padres. Uh, we're going to try to make sense of it today. We've got a fantastic guest joining us. Uh, so we're going to talk some Padres. We'll talk some minor league baseball as well. And I've also heard that this guy's got a new book out, um, which I'm very excited to read. So I'm going to welcome in Tim Haggerty, who has been the play-by-play -play voice of the Padres AAA baseball teams since 2008. Uh, he's been with the... They've, they are... El Paso Chihuahua since 2014 uh, has really traveled the the whole country as a minor league play-by-play -play guy and a broadcaster and one of the friendliest people I met out at spring training so someone who I'm glad we're able to connect and have on this show Tim welcome to the show great to have you here yeah you too Jack good to see you again how are you doing first of all good it's been a fun season as we tape this, tonight is El Paso's 117th game, so I recognize what you were saying at the beginning. It is hard to believe how fast it's gone by uh, the AAA season. I think it's even down to, to five weeks in our case. It's definitely... This has been the fastest season that I can remember in recent memory. Yeah, it's an interesting question. What makes that happen? Um, because sometimes time does seem to go by faster than others. I don't know. I mean, I think it's maybe it's just the fact that I came into the season. I went to spring training for the first time and I'm covering this thing. And so maybe it's my first time in it and it's just going by really quickly and I'm enjoying it. Yeah, it's funny how a season can do that. Um, I feel like it's flowing by, but then sometimes I look through my notes and I say, oh yeah, Fernando Tatis Jr. played here on rehab. That was back <laughs> in April. And that seems like two years ago. Uh, certain things, um, you know, it seems like longer than other things. So, Tim, the Padres entering play today, 60 and 66, five and a half games out of the last wild card spot in the National League. People, a lot of people had them winning the division coming into the year after slaying the Dragon and beating the Dodgers in the postseason last year. Dodgers didn't spend this winter. A lot of people were expecting some regression for L.A. And San Diego kind of looked like that team on the up that would take that next step. They are six games under 500. Like I said, five and a half uh, back of a playoff spot. But they have a plus 61 run differential, which is obviously a statistic that many of us look at. And it tends to indicate how a team performs. You would think they'd be have a better record than this. What... Give me the diagnosis. What's wrong with the Padres, and why are they in this position that they're at? I'm surprised that they're in the position that they're at, like a lot of people. You mentioned the run differential. 
As of a couple days ago, I don't know if this is still true, but when I checked last, they had the lowest ERA in the National League. Overall, they're pitching very well. The issue has been close games. In one-run games and in extra inning games, their record is very bad. Um, it's something like 0-10 in extra inning games at last check. And if you take that and you make it 5-5, five and five, well, all of a sudden you have a team with a winning record that's probably only, I don't know what the math would be, two back of the wild card instead of five and a half. The interesting thing is, I still see pockets of optimism that think they might be able to pull this off. Uh, the team is five and a half back. They play a lot of the teams that are ahead of them. And they have the talent that a winning streak could sprout up. The problem is they haven't shown evidence that that's going to happen. Uh, the team has not had a winning streak of longer than four games this year. But, you know, and another thing I, I think there's reason for optimism is in recent years we have seen teams have down years and then the next year become World Series contenders. You know, for years, Boston would alternate last place, first place, <laughs> last place, first place. So I do think if the Padres do end up on the outside looking in, which at this point appears the highest statistical likelihood, uh, that I don't think there's um, reason for pessimism in March. I mean, they still have a core of a great lineup. Still could be a, a playoff team next year. I mean, they were in the National League Championship Series less than a year ago. So, but in general, very surprising uh, that they're not closer than they are. Yeah, and I could see the optimism considering how thin the National League is past the top four teams. I mean, I've been joking about this and half joking, I should say, the past several weeks is National League's making a pretty good compelling argument to go back to having just four teams come out of each league for the playoffs <laughs> because you've got only four teams that are 10 games or more above 500. Uh, with And then there's a seismic gulf between Atlanta, Los Angeles, and everybody else. You've got Philly and Milwaukee who've been those teams that are 10, 11 games above 500. And then you've got a lot of these teams that I, I, I don't want to buy into any of them, quite frankly. So that's where I think you look at San Diego top to bottom, you see the run differential, you see how well their pitching staff has performed, and you see those names in that lineup and know what they're capable of doing. It makes sense that they could get hot and go on a run here and get back into the postseason. Yeah, and I've seen some tweets and some comments on MLB Network that echo the same thing, that if they were able to do that, San Diego's not a team you'd want to play. Blake Snell's having a great season. Hugh Darvish is an established veteran. By then, Joe Musgrove might be healthy in pitching. You're dealing with names like that at the beginning of a rotation, and then the lineup with Soto, with Machado, with Tatis, with these all-star names. You know, look at the Philadelphia Phillies last year. I don't think a lot of people expected them to be in the World Series when the playoffs began. So once October starts, you really don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, and the other thing that's funny is I know they were talking about the Sound MLB Network, I think it was yesterday, and one of the things that people are pointing to is there are four teams in front of them. Well, these four teams that are in front of them are not Goliaths. I mean, San Francisco has been playing very poorly over the last two, three weeks. Uh, Arizona went on a big slide where they lost nine in a row. Cincinnati has looked like a team that was on the up, but for the past month has really been mediocre at best, but they have not been playing very good baseball. Miami, 
seriously has regressed since the All-Star break. I think they were 14, 15 games over 500. Now they're just two games above 500. So my question to you, Tim, is who of these teams do you actually believe in? And we'll, we'll throw the Cubs in there as well. The Cubs just moved in front of San Francisco, but and they're playing well right now. But, I mean, man, they, they have also looked pretty bad at points this year. Yeah, I think out of the teams you mentioned, uh, to me, the success of Cincinnati is the most surprising. I thought prior to the season that the Marlins could be a contender because their starting pitching was so good. I think that for years here in AAA, we've seen some quality players coming through Reno, the Diamondbacks AAA team. That did appear to be an organization that had some very talented young players. I mean, coming through the past couple of years, seeing Corbin Carroll, uh, Alec Thomas, among others. So, yeah, to me, you know, maybe I should give Cincinnati more credit. It's probably a team that I didn't know as much about as the others. But to me, that's the one that is the most surprising that they're in the mix. Um, Padres play the Marlins tonight. They beat the Marlins last night. So that's a chance not only to move up for San Diego, but also give some losses to one of the teams ahead of them. I mean, that, that's it's stating the obvious, but when, when you can play head-to-head -head against a team that you're chasing, it's just such an advantage. It's an automatic loss for that team if you can win the game. Yeah, I think Arizona's going to find a way to get in because they had that they had that terrible stretch where they lost nine in a row and they, they lost several games before that. I think they went like a couple weeks without winning consecutive games. They they but they seem to have righted that ship. They I think they're like eight and two over the last ten or maybe seven and two over the last nine. They're playing much better baseball. Beat the Rangers last night. I think that Arizona is going to find a way to get in. I like and I like the that young core and the potential that team has. I do have questions about their pitching staff, but like we talk about, none of these teams really. Are flawless in any capacity. They all have clear weaknesses. Um, so I think Arizona's going to find a way to get in. The team that I think is confusing me the most is the Cubs. I did not think the Cubs, as a person who lives here in Chicago, would be contending for a playoff spot at this point in the season. I thought they should have sold at the deadline. And when they were 9, 10 games below 500 back in June, I and at one point had the worst record in the National League. I thought that was the type of team that you were going to see. So I, I don't know. I, I kind of still think the Cubs are going to regress at some point here. Their schedule is light over the next week, and then it's going to tighten up quite a bit because they will have Milwaukee next week. They still got to play the Reds again. They're going to play the Padres, right? Padres-Cubs have another series together. Maybe not. I believe that's true. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so they have... They have another one. I think it must be out in San Diego because they played at Wrigley already this year. Uh, and then they've got the Giants. So they're going to play all these teams that are in the hunt here. And I just, I'm curious to see because I thought last week was a good opportunity for them to gain some ground on Milwaukee in the division race when they had the White Sox and the Royals at home. And they really, they only went three and two over that stretch, which I personally believe if you're a contender and you're playing those two teams at this point in the season at home you shouldn't lose more than one game against them and they came close to losing a couple more of those they could have very easily gone one and four over that stretch yeah, it's interesting what you said when you said maybe they should have sold at the deadline um to me just my personal opinion i love when teams when their default is to go for it 
for a couple of reasons. Uh, love the message it sends to the fan base, to the clubhouse. San Diego's had some wild swings over the past handful of years of strong teams, disappointing teams, almost alternating year to year. But under their general manager, A.J. Preller, I think there's been an urgency to win the World Series as soon as possible, ever since he started in 2015. Uh, he started in August of 14, but leading into that 2015 season when they got Matt Kemp and James Shields and that yeah. um, both Justin and Melvin Upton ended up there, for example. And I love that. There was an urgency. We want to win this as soon as possible. Um, and also, I think that sometimes fans think it's the World Series championship or nothing. But to me, there is value in making it to the playoffs. That's another banner in your ballpark. That's something you talk about the next spring training, what it was like to have a playoff game in your home park. Um, I was at a Rocky spring training game, and, and they display those playoff appearances that they had in 17 and 18, as they should. That's an achievement, making it to the playoffs. Because I think a lot of people, for example, the Rockies, a lot of people forget that. But very recently, they were in the playoffs in back-to-back -back years. Um, so, yeah, the Cubs were certainly an interesting team at the deadline. You know, speaking of the deadline, I mean, how about the Seattle Mariners chose to trade some players, and now they've become the hottest team in the American League, not just for the wild card, but they're pretty close in the division now. I wonder if there's some regret there that maybe they didn't try to acquire more than they did with how things have turned out. That'll be a good question. I'm actually going to have our resident Seattle sports guy on later this week, uh, Mario Lanza. So I will ask him about that. Uh, huge Mariners fan. And uh, he's actually a guy who writes, a, he's written about reality TV for a long time, Survivor, a bunch of shows like that. But he's a huge Mariners fan. And um, what he was telling me, though, was he thinks that he thinks that they're actually just he, he thinks he likes that they kind of did what they did. He's he, the guys they traded other than Seawald were not really doing a whole lot for them. Uh, they weren't big time guys. They opened up opportunities for other guys to play. And uh, Dave Sims, Mariners play by play guy. I texted him about a month ago and he's like, Jack, trust me, the Mariners are about to heat up. It's about to happen. It's going to warm up. Bats are going to get going. The offense. I think the direct quote was, the offense is about to explode. And Dave was right. Good prediction. Wow. Keep the date on that uh, text. Uh, he called it. <laughs> You'll have to look back and see what the date was on that. But, um, yeah, they've been playing great. And to your point, I will say, Tim, even though I think the Cubs – what I what I see with the Cubs is I think I see a team that is positioning itself to kind of be in this middle ground for the next few years where I, I would rather, if I was running a team, just kind of sell off parts and build up, start accelerating the process. I look at what the Reds did, and the Reds punted on last year, and by punting on last year, several of the guys that have been contributors for their team have been were guys that they got in those trades last year. And they, I think it accelerated that process of competing. And I think the Reds are going to be a team that's going to be very strong for the next few years to come. So my thought was with the Cubs and Bob Nightingale said on this show, right before the deadline, he gives the Cubs zero chance at re-signing Bellinger. So I'm thinking, you know what? Got to get something for Bellinger. 
and just accelerate, get some get some parts and start building up that farm system. And otherwise, I think they're going to be stuck in this kind of middle ground. However, Tim, here's what I want to say to your argument. I said the exact same thing about the Phillies last year. I thought the Phillies should have blown that whole thing up. This new playoffs format lends itself well for teams. It incentivizes teams to go for it, even if they're just a few games above 500, because we saw what happened last year. Philly caught fire at the right time. They were a team that was built well for the postseason with their two aces, played extremely well at home, and you can ride some momentum and make a dent in the postseason. It's becoming more of a crapshoot, I think, in the postseason with this new format. Yeah, there's so much randomness in baseball. I mean, you can hit a ball 110 miles an hour right at somebody. You can hit a ball right at the top of the bat, and it turns into an infield hit. Um, just total randomness, and, and that gets highlighted in the playoffs when you're not being judged by 162 games when you're being judged by a five- or a seven-game series. So some crazy things can happen, for sure. Yeah, and the Cubs continue to prove me wrong, so we'll see what happens. Uh, speaking of the trade deadline... The Padres, some were speculating that they could have sold off some parts. Were you surprised that they did not? I remember when they won that series against the Texas Rangers right before the deadline. Yeah, swept them. It seems like exactly that that created some momentum that they could pull this off. Um, to be honest, I wasn't surprised because since A.J. Preller in this group yeah. took over late in 2014, their default has been to go for it. They have not been sellers. So if you asked me in mid-July, I would say probably not. And they chose to keep Josh Hader and Blake Snell, both of whom are free agents. Maybe they'll get them back next year, maybe not. But, you know, imagine if they did trade those players and then the Padres got hot and they finished two back of the wild card. People would always wonder. So, um, at the time, I, I thought it was the right move, to be honest. Yeah, Hopefully, and I think, right? I think, I mean, I think, again, going back to this, where the things stand in the National League, a lot of people coming into the year were penciling San Diego and the Mets into the postseason. It seemed like we had six, maybe seven teams maybe a couple teams that were jockeying for that last spot, but we had, you know, a handful of teams that were really, uh, people were penciling in the Padres and the Mets were those teams. If the, if the Padres can just get it clicking, they're going to leap past all these other teams. Exactly. And I mean, right now, five and a half back on August 22nd, um, I saw the fan graph playoff odds understandably have been dipping down and lower and lower. But it's not like it's at 1%. I mean, it is uh, achievable. That, that's what pe people keep saying is, I follow the Padres world pretty closely, and I, I hear some version of this all the time. If they can just rattle off seven or eight in a row. And with that roster, that's conceivable. Very much so. What I wonder is, are, are we going to be sitting here on the Jack Vita show on <laughs> September 22nd, and the Padres are six back and people are going to be saying if they could just win their final 10 games um, i hope not i hope you know but they have such a good roster that people understandably are unwilling to um 
you know, say that this season is dead. I, I think it is still August. So it's funny in baseball how there's so many games, but even like covering teams in the AAA world that I've broadcast for over the years when they're contenders and it's at times not looking good, at times is looking good. Despite our brains telling us not to, I think people react so much to that most recent game. <laughs> the Padres win a couple games in a row, and I start to think, all right, this is it. But then they'll play the Pirates and get swept, and I'll think they're done. <laughs> when the truth is, we don't know yet. We shouldn't react so much to every game. At least I do. <laughs> um, I remember last year, El Paso had a great team in 2022. They were actually, in late August, uh, down by about five games in the standings. It was actually similar to the Padres now. And they'd win a few in a row, and you'd begin to do some calculating, and the glass is half full, or we play well against this team. But then you lose a close game and think, oh, it's not going to happen. But the truth is, both are overreactions. So, Tim, in recent Major League Baseball news, Cole Hamels announced his retirement he was signed to a minor league contract by the Padres, never ended up throwing an inning in El Paso. Is that correct? Correct. So he never ended up taking the mound. Uh, it seemed as if, I, I think he had a shoulder uh, bug that he just, I mean, father time caught up with him, and he wasn't able to complete that comeback. Did you spend any time around Cole this year? No, I didn't. Uh, he was on paper on the Chihuahua's roster, but he was on the injured list and was back at Peoria, Arizona, um, working through that injury. But because of the logistics of the roster, uh, we, we'd be walking into the team hotel sometimes and people would say, is Cole here? Seeking his autograph. But the truth is he was never part of the Chihuahua's traveling party. Sometimes when you see a player on the injured list on a major league roster or a minor league roster, they're elsewhere. They're either uh, back in their hometowns, or they're at the team's spring training complex rehabbing that injury. So, regrettably, I never met Cole. I heard he was very approachable, very down-to-earth. The players here with El Paso who knew him in spring training said there really was not an ego despite his great success. So, um, you know, good for him. I love the fact that some players like him keep going for it because they love the game. Cole Hamels, I'm sure, has the bank account to retire and <laughs> never make uh, any money again the rest of his life and be fine. But he chose to keep going for it at age 39. I remember in 2014, the Chihuahuas had Jeff Francoeur on a minor league contract. And people would look at his baseball reference page and say, this guy's made $27 million. He's 33 years old. What is he doing playing for El Paso? Because he's 33 years old. What else is he going to do? I mean, I wouldn't want to sit on a beach every day for the rest of my life. Maybe when I'm 70 I will but he felt like he still had this love still had this passion still had the skills and you know what after El Paso he went on to play in the majors with the Padres the Marlins and the Phillies for three or four more years and really boosted his baseball reference page with what he achieved in the game and in the majors so I love when players like Camels just keep going for it and that's what's fun at AAA we don't just see the up-and-coming prospects but we see really established major leaguers trying to make it back. Last year for a month, Robinson Cano played for the El Paso Chihuahuas, not on a rehab assignment. People would say, what's Cano's injury? Why is he here? No, he's a member of the team. He's a minor leaguer, just like everybody else. And he made it back. He, uh, after that stint with El Paso, was acquired by the Atlanta Braves. 
And he wore the SpongeBob uniform, too. That's right. That was his first game with El Paso, wore the SpongeBob jersey. <laughs> I remember Jared Sandberg, the manager last year, said, uh, Robinson Cano is going to join us. He's not going to play his first day, but the second day, I'll get him a start. And I thought, that's SpongeBob SquarePants jersey <laughs> night. This is going to get some attention, and it did. Oh, that was great. Well, and speaking of Cole... Um, I do have a quote here. I spoke with one of his former teammates over the past week, Kyle Kendrick, who you might remember pitched with him in Philadelphia. And he said to what you were saying about Cole's personality, he said Cole was a great teammate, focused, worked hard, always wanted to hang out before and after games, loved talking, pitching on the bench, just a good person. Yeah, love that. You know, I, over the years in AAA, when when we have those bigger name players, um, others like Edwin Jackson and Jeremy Guthrie, longtime major leaguers have yeah. played here. And some people mistakenly think that those players will think they're above AAA and that they won't want to do interviews or autographs or photos. It's actually the opposite. I think major leaguers that are there for a long time recognize that certain things are part of the job. And the truth is those players in some ways are even more approachable than maybe an up and down player. Um, I think yeah. where you occasionally see maybe some tension is when it's a guy who's got parts of three or four years in the majors and he's played in 50 total games and he's just fighting and scrapping to get back and maybe in his head he believes he should be there right now. I think maybe that's where you occasionally see um, a little bit of an attitude for a AAA player, but it really isn't the Cole Hamels types or the Edwin Jackson types. I remember, um, so in AAA, we take commercial flights. So a lot of the times we're on Southwest Airlines, just like everybody else. This is not <laughs> private planes, uh, not charter jets like they have in the majors. And I mean, you hear some stories, like when Barry Zito played for Nashville, Barry Zito one day got C-50 for Southwest and he was sitting in the middle seat <laughs> on a Southwest Airlines flight at 6 a.m. going from Nashville to Colorado Springs or wherever they were going. I remember uh, Edwin Jackson one time just kind of observing him out of the corner of my eye on a Southwest Airlines flight, and the guy next to him was reading a fantasy baseball magazine. <laughs> and I thought, if this guy plays fantasy baseball, he definitely knows who Edwin Jackson is, but he has no idea that he's sitting next to him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, those are great stories. You mentioned Jeremy Guthrie. Did you get to know him at all? Yes, Jeremy Guthrie is among the most charitable players I've ever been around. I know he has that reputation in the major leagues as well. Uh, but there was a time that he actually approached the El Paso Chihuahuas community staff and said, to be honest with you, on the mornings I don't pitch, I don't have a lot going on. Can you sign me up for everything? And he would go to the children's hospital. He helped out with uh, Habitat for Humanity, homeless charities. Um, and that's just how he is. He it was his idea to go do it. It wasn't just somebody asking him to do it. Uh, and that really impressed me. These are events that there weren't cameras around. You know, he's not taking a selfie of himself saying, here's where I am, which is okay when people do that. I, I love anything that um, brings attention to a positive cause. But I think that's just his nature is if I have a morning off and I have nothing to do, I want to help somebody else. He is a remarkable person he's actually going to be coming on the show sometime soon uh talk to him a little bit great great guy so really excited to have him on 
Yeah, please tell him uh, everyone in El Paso remembers him well. Absolutely. So Cole Hamels announces his retirement. Tim, I'm putting you on the spot here a little bit, but my question to you is, is Cole Hamels a Hall of Famer? Um, you know what that makes me think of is there was this there's this article a couple of years ago by Mike Petriello, and he talked about how basically there's a lot fewer starting pitchers from the most recent era of baseball going into the Hall of Fame than there were in the past, mm. and that maybe we should take a more serious look at David Cohn, Mark Burley, Tim Hudson. I'm not saying we'd vote for those people, but that maybe they deserve a closer inspection than you'd think. And to me, maybe Cole Hamels is in that category. The fact is, with pitcher innings usage, we're not going to see 300-game winners anymore, at least not the way we used to. This is not going to be Tom Glavin, Greg Maddox, Randy Johnson, where you know, within a 10-year span, there's multiple guys getting 300 wins. That's just not going to happen anymore. Um, and I think that, understandably, we now realize that pitcher wins are not among the most valuable stats when it comes to evaluating a pitcher. I do like a, a good career wins total. I think when I think of Lefty Grove and I think of 300 wins, that tells me something. I think it, historically it has a lot of value. But is uh, Zach Greinke going to pile up a wins total that matches Lefty Grove? He's not. Um, so to me, um, Cole Hamels, World Series MVP. I'm cheating here. When you uh, started asking me that question, I pulled up his page. <laughs> but 15 years, 3.43 ERA. That probably leads to a strong wins above replacement. Yeah, 59. I mean, that's that's a strong wins above replacement for a career. So my first thought when you said that was no, but I think I've changed my mind to Ooh. deserves a strong, strong look. What do you think? I say yes. I actually think it's interesting. I think when I've asked people, Tim, do you mind me asking your age, by the way? 40. 40. Okay. So I'm 29, and I think I've noticed this with people your age and above when I've mentioned Cole Hamill's Hall of Fame. I feel like I hear now, now, at first look, before looking at the stats, no, 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 no. But if I talk to people my age and younger, he was one of the iconic pitchers of our childhood. I mean, he, wow. I, I grew up, I mean, he, I guess I was a little older, so I was junior high, high school when he was really in his prime. But I just think of him as being one of the best pitchers of his era. And I did look into these statistics. I do think it's close. I don't think it's like a slam dunk, like, a, uh, I mean, Roy Halladay was an easy first ballot. But, I mean, so for his career, he was a four-time All-Star, four times he finished top eight in Cy Young voting. Uh, 2008 postseason, he was the NLCS MVP, the World Series MVP, and they won the World Series. He was all-world for them in that postseason. And then his 10-year peak, uh, so 2007 through 2016, 326 ERA, 126 ERA plus, 35 FIP. And I just kind of look at part of it for me, Tim, is not just the numbers, but I think about there's a story with Cole Hamels. He won a World Series. He won World Series MVP. He's one of the iconic Philadelphia pitchers. I mean, he's the first guy I think of from that run 
where they had the the five years they won the division. Um, he pitched a no hitter and he pitched an immaculate inning. I think the only thing really missing from that complete career is the Cy Young award. But I don't necessarily think you need the Cy Young to get into Cooperstown. So I actually would say yes. However, and then you also mentioned War. He's at 59. A lot of people look at 60 as kind of that cutoff point for pitchers. So he's right there. And I really, I think that's interesting though, is it? it does seem like a people my age, We I think it's like we don't, not everyone's going to agree with me and say, yes, he's in for sure. But I mean, he is one of those guys that you think of from that era of us growing up. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, and I, I love the word you use, like iconic and the story. I think that's so important with Hall of Fame decision-making that people don't just look at wins above replacement and decide yes or no, or they don't just look at, you know, in the old school, you don't just look at a hit total. Um, I think that's what's so great with some of the committees that the Hall of Fame is doing when it comes to reevaluating Negro League players or early baseball legends, not just the stats, but really you have experts digging in. What was this player like? Were they famous? I mean, it's the Hall of Fame. I, I think that word plays a, pole, a, a part. And just as you expressed, the emotion of this guy was one of the iconic players of my childhood. You know, was that true? There, there was a player in the 1920s, uh, Rap Dixon, a Negro Leagues player. And the more I read about this guy, he was one of the best outfielders in the world of any skin color in the 1920s and the 1930s. I'm sure of it. And uh, you can't tell that from only the statistical page. you got to really dig in and read about people. Um, when you were talking about Cole Hamels, I remember when Jimmy Rollins' name comes up, I think at first my thought was maybe just on the outside looking in, but then as people talked about him, and you talk about MVP, was on a World Series winning team and a big part of a World Series winning team. I mean, he wins the World Se wins the World Series in 08, was the MVP in 07. And I like what you referenced there as far as his peak. I know the Jay Jaffe uh, Jaws score grabs, what is it, uh, best seven consecutive seasons, right? As far as their peak. Uh, that's a great peak for Jimmy Rollins. And, and then for the old school stats, 2,455 hits, that's nothing to sneeze at either. So, uh, yeah, I think there's certainly some players that maybe even if the first reaction is no, they deserve a closer inspection. Yeah, and if you think about those Phillies, the Phillies team there, Roy Halladay got in, but you don't really think, I don't personally think of Roy Halladay as a Philly. I think of him as a Blue Jay. I think of Cole Hamels as a Philly. And I think of Ryan Howard, Chase Utley, Jimmy Rollins, all three of those guys as Phillies. I think Ryan Howard, I looked at all this stuff recently, um, and Ryan Howard, I think he was like one or two years short. He was on that trajectory, but he had the Achilles injury, and it was right. tragic because I think he puts in one or two more Ryan Howard years, and he's he's. I don't think it's that hard to put him in. Uh, Chase Utley, I think, will get in. At least I think he should get in. He was the best hitting second baseman of his era. And if you look at his five-year peak, oh, my goodness. It was like 35 home runs each year, 120 RBI per year, uh, 300 average, 380 OBP, and a 900-plus OPS. Like, at second base? You're kidding me? He's got to be in. Yeah, I, and I agree with you that he will get in at some point. Uh, 
I heard somebody on a radio show the other day wondering about Joey Votto, and to me, that's a yes. Yeah. Oh, easily. Yeah. Yeah. And not just the on-base percentage, but you know, you mentioned the the word iconic. I mean, that's an iconic Cincinnati Red for an iconic franchise. I think for that same reason, Yadier Molina will get in. Iconic franchise, longtime player. It's interesting. Um, the stories I've heard about Yadi being a wizard with calling pitches. In 2019, for example, um, El Paso set a Pacific Coast League record for most home runs in a season, a league that goes back a long, long time. Uh, they had a great hitting team led by Ty France, who was the MVP of the PCL that year. Well, the team went to Memphis, and Memphis had a bad team. They had these pitchers going out there in a very pitcher-friendly park with ERAs and six and seven, but they're just shutting down El Paso. And I asked the El Paso coaches after the game how it was happening, and they just said, Yadi. Yadier Molina was there on rehab. Wow. And he didn't know anything about the opposing team, and he didn't know very much about his own pitchers. But he had such a tendency to observe after one swing everything about this batter that he's calling the right things and Memphis is dominating this triple A series because they have this genius behind the plate. Um, and I thought about that this year when Yadi is no longer with the Cardinals and the struggles they've had. And, you know, I haven't studied their ERA this year compared to last year, but I wonder if that's part of it. If they, if they had this precocious talent behind the plate with calling pitches that nobody could replace. I 100% think it is, and to the point of the icons, I think that's really important. I'm glad you brought that up, because when Edgar Martinez got into the Hall of Fame and Lance Berkman did not, I asked that question, because if you look at the stats, they're really similar, and Berkman played the field. He didn't just DH, which Edgar did for the majority of his career at a certain point, uh, and Mario Lanza, who will be coming on this show as a Seattle guy, he pointed out, he's like, well, you know what? Edgar was a Mariner for life. And he was like, he is, when you think of the Mariners, you think of him, you think of Griffey, you think of Ichiro, but Griffey and Ichiro didn't stay there for their whole careers. Edgar did. And I think there's great value to that. I think that adds to a player's legacy. And I think it's Absolutely. really really interesting because I think you see right now, and I'm no longer an NBA fan. I used to be a much bigger NBA fan. I think you see a lot of players right now. They're very much thinking about their legacy. And I think that many of them could be greater legends by staying with one team their whole career. Even if they don't win anything, they can retire as the greatest player that's synonymous with that franchise. Absolutely. And instead, you're yeah. seeing guys going around trying to get that ring. But to me, the, the ring doesn't really mean as much because, especially if you're joining up with other superstars. So I think it's going to be really interesting, circling back to baseball, to see if something like that is meaningful to Shohei Otani when he hits free agency. I think you're 100% right when it comes to legacy and playing your whole career with one team. There are baseball legends without a World Series ring in their city. Robin Yount, Tony Gwynn. I know Ryan Sandberg played a little bit with the Phillies, but to me, he's yeah. a tub. Um, I think about that, that that went against Fred McGriff. I'm sure that if Fred McGriff, if his career kept him in one place for most or all of his career, that he'd be in the Hall of Fame years ago. But when we think about Fred McGriff, we don't think of an iconic 
Brave or Blue Jay or Padre or Devil Ray because he bounced around so much. Um, yeah, I'm sure you're right, and I think that will help Molina, for example. 100%. Uh, last thing on this, and we're going to get into some of your stories of minor league baseball, is um, I went to Cleveland a couple years ago. I didn't see a single LeBron poster or anything. And that I know LeBron is going to go into the Hall of Fame. He's going to be an icon, everything like that. But he he could have been Michael Jordan to the city of Cleveland. You've got Michael Jordan here in Chicago. Even though he went to the Wizards for a couple of years, I just think it, it's a little different. It adds a little something special when you do have that that legacy with one team. And it's just I think that'll be interesting with LeBron. I mean, obviously, he's going to go down as one of the greatest players ever. I don't want to take too much away from him but it's just interesting because he was the hometown kid fully embraced by cleveland left the city twice he talked to people in cleveland he doesn't have that same kind of reverence that mj does here in chicago yeah i mean i grew up obsessed with baseball it sounds like you did as well oh, yeah. and when you think of a certain team a certain couple of players come to mind especially from your youth i mean when i thought about the kansas city royals Back in the 90s, they were a bad team, but I thought about Mike Sweeney. He played there forever. He was, yeah. you know, it felt like in my head every year he was their all-star. And I'm sure Mike Sweeney today is more famous because of that than if he played for a different team every three years. I'm sure of it. I, I agree with you. So Tim has a book out that he wrote um, Earlier this year, it came out. It's called Tales from the Dugout, a thousand and one humorous, inspirational, and wild anecdotes from minor league baseball. Uh, we're going to talk about the book here. Tim's got some great stories from minor league baseball. First of all, Tim, I I'm curious to know what inspired you to write this book. In addition to broadcasting games, I've always also loved baseball research and baseball history articles. And in 2012, I was researching something else. And I came across this story from the 1880s of a wild bull running on the field and delaying a Texas League game in Austin. The bull is kicking up dust. It knocked down part of the fence. Fans are shrieking. And I thought, I cover this for a living, and I've never heard this story before. <laughs> so it was really that story that taught me just how many stories there are out there that a lot of sports fans don't know about. So over the next decade, I compiled 1,001 wild stories like that from both the past and the present of minor league baseball. I'm very excited to uh, get into it. I've got it coming in the mail today from Amazon. It's I'm a I'm a very interesting reader. I've got I've got the Bible here. I've got a book about survivor history, and now I'll be adding the minor league baseball uh, into the rotation. So it'll it'll be going right next to my systematic theology book. Uh, very different books. Yeah, I I can't promise the the depth and importance of a survival book <laughs> or a theology book, but uh, might be more, more entertaining, I'll tell you that much. Oh, no, this one, this isn't a survival book. It's about the TV show Survivor. So, oh, okay. So I see. I reality thought, like, TV. you were going up to the woods and you were going to... No, no, you know, I can't do like that. ...into the wild guy. <laughs> I can't do that. So that yeah. I'm just showing. i got a wide variety of books, but this I'm looking forward to this. I'm curious to know, how does it read? I mean, do you have, like... So you have a thousand and one stories. Are they? Um, is each story like a little couple couple of pages type thing? Even shorter. Um, it's really good looking book. So uh, yeah, just a, what I hope is a catchy headline above each one, and then a paragraph. And the thing I wanted was 
illustrations as well. For example, uh, in 2015 in El Paso, there was a wiener dog delay, and there's uh, an illustration of it. So, oh, awesome! Um, yeah, throughout the book, there's more than 85 illustrations, and they were done by a, a Harper Collins illustrator. I have no uh, drawing ability at all, so I can't take credit for the illustrations. But that's what I hoped was that it was a really visual book. Um, what I like about it as well, and what's a nice feedback that I'm getting is, you can really just pick up any section of it. Um, here's a guy who was uh, given um, 50,000 pennies from fans after he broke his leg playing for Louisville. They gave him a wash tub full of pennies. But, um, you know, really one page isn't connected to the next. Uh, my hope is this is a coffee table book. You can yeah. pick it up and flip through it and enjoy it. And I really tried to have a high standard for what was wild enough to make it into the book. I do feel like all 1001 stories do elicit some kind of reaction. I compiled about 1,100 stories. Wow. And I reached a point where I was like, okay, what's the <laughs> format going to be? I got to make a decision here. And one day I walked by my wife's cookbook in the kitchen and it said 1,001 recipes. And I thought 1,001, I like that number. <laughs> uh, so I actually narrowed That's it great. down and merged some stories. For example, I found one in the 1930s of a player who was arrested for swearing on the field. Whoa. And in 1907, <laughs> there was an umpire who was arrested for swearing on the field. Not just ejected, <laughs> but arrested. So those two stories became one as I was um, winnowing it down. Well, that sounds great to me because I will admit I am mildly dyslexic. So reading isn't very, it's not something I'm very good at. So reading this like gigantic theology book is not going to be easy for me. I haven't even started it. Um, but I like stuff like your book is going to be a nice little easy read when I'm laying down at the beach, getting some sun and just kind of laughing. And it sounds like some of these stories are pretty funny. Well, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, that was my hope. And what I think it's showing people is uh, really what the, the deep history that minor league baseball has. There are a lot of present day stories, but really some wild stuff that's taken place over the years. Um, for example, uh, you'll like this, talking about the yeah. trade deadline. Um, Wichita Falls in Texas traded a pitcher for a plate of beans. <laughs> in 1930, Wichita Falls had this pitcher, Yule Moore. He wasn't pitching well, and he had a bad attitude. And the team president wanted to get rid of him. And he was venting about this pitcher to San Antonio's president over dinner. San Antonio actually had a need for some pitching. And he said, well, to be honest with you, we could use him. And the Wichita Falls boss said, if you pay for this plate of beans, he's yours. So a pitcher got <laughs> traded for a plate of beans. <laughs> now, now, Tim, does this include independent league baseball too? Or are these all affiliate league teams it does include independent baseball um which is professional baseball players yeah. are paid and throughout minor league history not all leagues had direct affiliations to major league teams the way they do now so it does include some independent league stories uh, for example in the 1990s two independent league teams traded a player for 10 pounds of mississippi catfish <laughs> there's the greensville bluesmen in mississippi and the pacific suns in california and they traded this guy, Ken Trahenbull, for catfish. <laughs> Do you have, so I, I thought of this, do you have the story, I think it was a Schaumburg Flyers. Uh, I don't know if you have this in your book. 
I think they traded like a, a case of beer for a player. Yes. And that guy, the fun fact about that guy was they Budweiser, people might remember this. They had those Leon commercials, right. which are some of my favorite. I thought those were those were my childhood watching, you know, Fox baseball or, or football on Sundays. And they had this great campaign where Leon was this parody of like a diva wide receiver or running back and then at some point he starts playing baseball so he's kind of like a parody of like a Deion Sanders mixed with T.O. mixed with a couple other guys and just like he is the diva personality in all these commercials I remember the one with Joe Buck where they argue about who has they want to who stands on which side of the interview because they both have a good side of their face that they want to show um and that guy was the guy who was traded in that in that story. Exactly, yeah. He was traded for cases of Budweiser <laughs> to the Fullerton Flyers in California. And there are some crazy trades in here. Um, one of my favorite trade stories was 1931. Chattanooga had this eccentric owner named Joe Engel. He would do wild things. He had players enter one day on elephants. He had singing birds set up in cages around his ballpark because he liked the noise. Well, in 1931, he traded his shortstop to Charlotte for a turkey. And then he served the turkey at a banquet for the sports writers. <laughs> and they asked him, why did you trade your shortstop for a turkey? And he said, because the turkey was having a better year. <laughs> Ouch. I wonder if any of this inspired uh, Semi-Pro, where they trade a player for a washing machine. I didn't think about that. Maybe. <laughs> the Will Ferrell classic comedy. I don't know if you saw that one. I didn't, but but there is a real-life baseball trade like that. In the 1990s, the late, very nice man, uh, Kevin Towers, San Diego Padres general manager, traded this pitcher, or a uh, catcher, I should say, Sean Mulligan, for cash and a new treadmill. <laughs> Towers was at the old ballpark. They needed a treadmill. And he was talking to Cleveland at the time and said, what do you think? So uh, as recently as the 1990s, an affiliated professional catcher was traded for a treadmill. Oh, my gosh. That's amazing. Uh, Tim, I'm curious, how long did it take for you to round up all these stories and put this book together? It took 10 years. I wasn't working on it every day for 10 years, but right. it was an ongoing document for that long. For current stories, I'd talk to players, coaches, managers, scouts. I'd make a note when I heard a story. For older stories, I used newspaper archives. There was an annual Spalding and Reach baseball guide that was very helpful. Those are available through Library of Congress online. Uh, baseball Digest archives are available online. I also went to the Baseball Hall of Fame library in Cooperstown, which is a great resource. The Hall of Fame, of course, is known for the plaque gallery and the museum, but they also have a building, the Giamatti Research Center. And they're so helpful there that if in advance you tell them you're coming and what you'd look to do, they actually have the books right there ready for you when you show up. And it was awesome flipping through these publications that weren't available anywhere else. And they're so old and so historic that the Hall of Fame actually has you put on surgical gloves. They wow. don't want the oils from our skin to go into these books. Um, so as someone who loves baseball history and research, that was really special. I mean, holding this book that was printed in 1890 and... Uh, it's so important they want you to wear gloves. Wow. Very sacred. It sounds sacred, like yeah, that's a good word for it. It really is. It feels like Indiana Jones kind of thing. 
Exactly. Yeah. Rolling out an old map or something. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it is the, the hall of fame is just such a repository of information. The things that they have stored in their artifacts, I mean, letters from one ball player to another from the 1920s, uh, amazing stuff. Um, and I'm curious to know, Tim, we'll come back to the book in a little bit. I got, I want to hear a few more stories, but you've been in this thing for a while. I'm, I'd love to know, first of all, how did you get into doing what you do now? I started in high school. Um, I grew up in Massachusetts and went to high school in Canton near Boston and the town cable TV access, uh, cable access TV station was in the high school. So they had this class where kids could announce play-by-play -play or host a show. And I got really into that. I could tell instantly it was more than something I was interested in, that it was really a passion. Uh, there were times I would duck away from class or duck away from track practice, but I wasn't causing trouble. I was sneaking away to go edit tape in the TV studio of the most recent game or the most recent show. So I was lucky that when I was 17 years old, I knew what I wanted to do. I targeted a college based on that, Northern Vermont University, uh, since has been named Vermont State University, but they had a great broadcast program, but always loved baseball and went to the baseball winter meetings in 2003 and was hired to be the Idaho Falls announcer in 2004, Wow! the Royals rookie league team. And it's funny, the big prospect on that team was Billy Butler, a great high school talent. He won the batting title in the Pioneer League that year. And we were occasionally in touch. We occasionally taped interviews. Uh, and he now wrote the foreword for my new book. Oh, wow. Yeah, Billy, uh, that's what I hoped, was to have a big-name player contribute a story from their minor league days. And Billy tells the story of a snake delay in Wyoming. It was actually a game that I broadcast, uh, the game that he talks about. And Billy, strangely, if you, I remember looking at his baseball reference sometime somewhat recently, and... I couldn't believe his career ended as abruptly as it did. He batted like, I think he batted like 280, 270 in his last year. And I don't, I don't know what happened there. I don't remember if he just chose to retire, if he didn't get picked up. But I mean, he was a very, very good player. He was. He was an all-star. He played in a World Series. He won a Silver Slugger. And you look at the totals. You know, what I look at, I know he was a DH primarily with Kansas City, but he played some of these game totals, 162, 161, 159. Yeah. I mean, I know he wasn't playing in the field every day, but pretty durable when you talk about 158 or more games, five straight years. Um, I also don't know about the ending. I, I've never asked him about that. You're right, though. He, he hit pretty well in 2016 between the A's and the Yankees. I think sometimes if a player only has a, a minor league offer for the next year, mm -hmm. they might choose to hang them up if they don't get that, that guaranteed major league offer. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I would think that you're right that, um, I mean, he was only his age 30 season. Yeah. And, and I mean, I, I just think kind of opportunity. I think it's crazy if he didn't get a major league offer with that kind of production. I, I think that's insane. Yeah, I wonder if he did. You know, with the he retired a little bit before the universal DH. I wonder yep. if that rule was implemented a few years earlier, if maybe he did play another year or two after. Created more job opportunities. You mentioned the winter meetings. Uh, was that 
a key part of you getting your first opportunity? Yes, my first couple of opportunities for sure. Um, they had the baseball job fair and I remember being in my college dorm and discovering this online. You know, this is before social media. This, <laughs> yeah. I really thought I had a scoop. I thought I had a secret. So I printed off my resumes and I made my CDs. This is before people were sending links for their demo. You submitted an actual CD of your play-by-play -play sample. And I went down there in a suit. It was in New Orleans. And I walk into this massive auditorium and I see about a hundred guys that look exactly like me holding their CDs. I thought, oh, this is a lot more competitive than I thought. There are four job open openings, and there's about 100 broadcasters. And I say guys because at that time it was. You know, these days things are more diverse in baseball broadcast booths. But at that time, all 100 guys off the top of my head were like me. They were early 20s, um, males holding their CD. But I was lucky enough to get a couple of interviews and got a job offer with Idaho Falls. And it was a great experience. I was born in New Hampshire, um, moved to Massachusetts, went to college in Vermont. So I really had never lived anywhere in the West, but being on these bus rides, going through Wyoming and Utah and Montana, just stunning places. Uh, it was everything I hoped it would be. It's also really fun at the short season rookie league level. Everybody's so positive. Uh, these players, they're all sure that they're going to be in the majors in a couple of years. They're all so excited they just got drafted um, nobody's complaining that the hotels are bad or that the bus rides are long. People are just thrilled. It's, um, you know, maybe the most optimistic level of baseball. That's really cool. So how have you seen this thing, this industry change over the last, since you got into it, how has your job or your duties or just the industry at large changed? I think the first thing that comes to mind is just how much more widespread the broadcasts become. When I first started in 2004, we were on a radio station. Uh, they started streaming. So with a computer, you could pick up the audio um, wherever you wanted to. But then, you know, keep in mind, this is before smartphones that played audio. This is before social media. So the more time went on, the more and more accessible the broadcast became. Whereas tonight, El Paso has a home game, and if there's an inside the park home run or a triple play or a wiener dog delay like I talked <laughs> about earlier, I mean, at any given moment, that video could be seen by a million people overnight. And I have examples of that. I mean, um, Fernando Tatis Jr. had a three home run game here for El Paso on rehab as he was coming back from a suspension in April. And luckily the calls came out okay because SportsCenter now grabs that video while the game is going on. They put it on ESPN and they put it on SportsCenter's Twitter. And the next day, something like three and a half million people had seen it. There's no chance that could happen in 2004. No chance that you get the video during the game that it could spread so quickly. You know, back then, if something notable happened in a minor league game, you hoped that a local TV station was there covering it. We've all seen the video of Rodney McRae running through the outfield wall in Portland in 1991 versus Vancouver. Um, I've interviewed the photographer that took that shot. And the only reason he was there is because it was Memorial Day weekend. There weren't any other really news stories going on that night. 
And it was a slow game. The first half of that game, there's no highlights. That's what the TV news photographers do. If they show up and they get back-to-back home run shots, they're good. They have their highlights. They can head back to the station. What I'm saying is there is a possibility that that outfielder running through the fence was never captured on video. Uh, it would have been this myth that we talked about that that people claimed happened. but we That would be in your book. Exactly. Whereas now, if a guy runs through an outfield fence tonight, I mean, there's going to be millions of people watching it overnight. So, um, you know, people talk about maybe the harms of social media, and a lot of them bring up good points. But I think for a AAA baseball team, for any minor league team, for any Division II college, it's a tremendous thing where... Um, I remember flipping through the comments on the Fernando Tatis three home run video. People are saying, that stadium looks amazing. Or people would say, do we have to talk about how El Paso Stadium is as nice as most major league stadiums? So I love that. These people in other parts of the country are now recognizing how good looking downtown El Paso is and this ballpark is. Um, A decade ago, that wouldn't have happened. Yeah, one thing that I'm definitely appreciative of in this modern tech era with social media and abilities to put it, distribute content is, I mean, this this show wouldn't exist in 2004. I mean, and it's grown over time. And I just kind of started doing it when I graduated college and I actually had health issues and I couldn't work. So it's... It's cool. I think that's one thing, one way that things have changed for the better is people have an opportunity to kind of put out their own stuff if they don't get picked up and get an immediate opportunity. Last thing on the broadcasting, and then I want to get a few more stories out of you before we go, uh, is I'm curious to know, I'm sure that there are some young people that are listening, or even some people who might not, might not even be in college. Maybe they're in their 20s or their 30s, and they would love to switch careers and find a way to to work in baseball or do something similar to what you do. I'm curious to know what tips or advice you would provide to those people. I think when contacting teams to try to make it as personal as possible throughout the fall and winter, I do get various emails, inquiries, resumes. And sometimes it's obvious that people have copied and pasted. In fact, one time, and I don't say this to embarrass anybody, but just to give you some background, one time somebody contacted me and in it, talked about how they'd love to work for the Dunedin Blue Jays. And I'm the broadcaster for the El Paso Chihuahuas. And it's obvious what happens. Dunedin is the closest team alphabetically to El Paso. He didn't change his previous email. Uh, To me, I appreciate their effort of trying to contact everybody. But I think the ones that really stand out when you're contacting somebody is when you say things like, I see your ballpark one, ballpark of the year, or that must have been something when Tatis played for you. Or I read about your wiener dog delay. (laughs) Um, Then I think, okay, this is a person who's done their homework. And I think that applies for job interviews as well. I think that we have a media relations assistant here who works for the Chihuahuas and I'm involved with the interview process for that. And one thing I noticed with some applicants, I don't know if it's a generational thing or if it's just a different approach that I had was some sort of act like they're a major league free agent and that it's up to us to recruit recruit them. I love a, an interview person that they really want to impress you. 
because that's how I was as, as an inter interviewee. I recognized how much competition there was for these jobs, and you can really stand out by showing your effort. Uh, to me, that's even more important than the resume. What type of person are we getting? Because in baseball, even though now there's a day off every week in the minor leagues, you're still working a six or a 12 game homestand. And by the end of it, your body's tired. But what's your attitude like? Are you still positive or are you moping around? Are you still trying your best? I think about that a lot with my job. Um, I'm also the media relations manager for the Chihuahuas and some days are, are busy in the office. And I'm not at my best at 7.05 on the air. Okay, I can either mail it in that night and go through the motions and, and give myself a pass, or I can really try to try as hard as I possibly can to make it, if it's not my best broadcast, to make it my best that I have that night. Um, anyway, that's a long answer, but I mean, I, I think in general, no matter what the field, what the job pursuit is, that I think effort is noticeable and that really makes an impression. I think it's even more important than your past experience. Mm, that's great advice, Tim. All right, uh, we only have a few minutes left here and I wanna give you a chance to talk a little more about your book. So why don't you give us a few different stories here um, and you, I'll let you just kind of take control here and tell whatever you wanna talk about. Um, but I, we talked a little bit about the trades. I wanna see a little bit of the variety of the kind of stories that you have in this book. So give us a few samples here. So in West Virginia, a batter hit a 200 mile home run, 1982. Wow. Randy Bush was batting for Toledo in Charleston, West Virginia, and he hit a high home run that flew over the right field wall and landed in a moving coal train <laughs> that kept on going for hundreds of miles. 200 mile home run. That's great. Um, a game I was calling, 2007, Double A Mobile at Montgomery, and the Mobile pitcher Matt Elliott allowed this game-tying home run in the bottom of the eighth inning, and he was so upset that he went into the dugout bathroom and slammed the door. And it busted the lock, and he locked himself in the bathroom. But he's still the pitcher. So the bottom of the ninth comes up. Mobile takes the field, but there's nobody on the pitcher's mound. And there's nobody warming up in the bullpen. And the manager, Brett Butler, is literally scratching his head, talking to the umpires, looking at his lineup card, figuring out what to do. They had to bring in a new pitcher because the pitcher was locked in the bathroom and was locked in the bathroom until 45 minutes after the game ended when Montgomery's fire department arrived and pulled the door down. <laughs> That's great. Um, so one of my favorites is probably the one that took me the longest to pin down the details. I called a lot of former players, worked some sources on this. I heard about a fly ball that disappeared. And there's some big names in this story. Hmm. In 1978, Bristol is at Jersey City in the AA Eastern League. Wade Boggs is playing for Bristol. Ricky Henderson's playing for Jersey City. And on a clear night, a right-handed batter hit a high fly ball to right field, and it vanished. It didn't land on the field, it didn't go in the stands, and it didn't go over the fence. And I know this sounds hard to believe, but I'm telling you, I talked to these people more than 40 years later. I communicated with a fan who was at the game, with an employee who was there, and everybody describes it the same way. They just sort of looked at each other. What happened to this ball? And the reason I believe that nobody knew is that the umpires got together and gave the batter a double. But the fact that the umpires had to get together and talk about this tells me that they did not locate the ball. 
Uh, but they say it was a clear night. This is not a case of it being lost in the fog. But, yeah, there's a story in my book. Uh, a double-A game in 1978, a fly ball disappeared. Are there any theories about what happened to it? I had that same question. Uh, reportedly, there's a kid behind the outfield wall who was holding a ball, but some people said it wasn't the game ball. Somebody contacted me via email and said that uh, David Copperfield, the magician, apparently grew up near Jersey City. Maybe he had something to do with this. <laughs> um, no, I got to email with Wade Boggs about this, and, and they say truly the ball <laughs> disappeared. I know. I don't know. <laughs> and this was a normal baseball? Like it wasn't wound a little differently? <laughs> Great question. Um, I, I found a game in the... Uh, 1940s in the Kentucky, Illinois, Tennessee league that a ball went up and it struck an owl and an owl came thumping down to the field. <laughs> so that made me wonder, like, did some bird somehow seize this? Maybe some kind of wildlife? Yeah, like an eagle or a hawk swooped it out of the air. Something like that. That would be pretty remarkable. Yeah. That would be like, that would be great social media content right now. That would For be sure. Like- <laughs> oh, Tim, this is so much fun. Is there anything else that you want to talk about here while you're here about your book or your career or the Padres, Chihuahuas, anything else? Well, thank you. Uh, every copy sold helps a lot. The book is on a discount on Amazon right now, and its title is Tales from the Dugout, 1001 Humorous, Inspirational, and Wild Anecdotes from Minor League Baseball. Um, but no, thanks for the opportunity to mention that. I think if people love the game that they're watching and listening to uh, your show i think they'd enjoy it 100 percent um i'll give you i'll give you another question here how about tell me about this before we go tim what makes minor league baseball special and fun because i think i'll say this growing up in chicago i mean i've lived here my whole life i i lived in kenosha for a little bit i lived in valparaiso for a little bit I had never been to a minor league game until a couple years ago. You live in a big market. There aren't minor league teams that are that close. And so it's like, well, you could go to Wrigley, which is just hop on the train and you're there. Or you could go to, uh, you know, drive two or three hours out to King County and go to a King County Cougars game. So my question to you is, I, I think there are probably a lot of people who are big baseball fans that don't love minor league baseball because they haven't gotten to experience minor league baseball. So tell us a little bit about what make my, what makes minor league and independent league baseball special. I think the word community comes to mind here in El Paso, for example, people are in some cases, Dodgers fans, some Padres fans, some Diamondbacks fans, um, some Rangers and Astros as well, even though Phoenix is a lot closer than, um, you know, Dallas or Houston to El Paso. But there's something about your team with El Paso on that jersey. I think that the Chihuahuas have become not just the El Paso professional baseball team, but really a symbol for the city. People talk about it all the time. People wear the cap everywhere. I was picking up my seven-year-old son at school and I see people wearing Chihuahuas caps, both the parents and the kids. Um, I think that in some cities, you know, we see this in a huge city like Chicago, for example, there's such pride for a musician who's from there or something that Chicago's known for or the Cubs or the White Sox. Well, that happens in medium-sized cities as well. El Paso, by the way, there's 700,000 people here. This is a, a big city. 
And I think the Chihuahuas have really become part of the family here. I also think it's fun. I hear from fans of minor league baseball that might come to a couple games a year. In some cases, they're not sports fans, but they love the atmosphere. They love the between innings promotions. You know, we talked about the El Paso uh, dog delay when a wiener dog <laughs> ran around the infield. You're much more likely to see that happen in El Paso <laughs> than you are at Yankee Stadium. So to me, that's what I love as well, is that I get to see top-level baseball, exciting games. People are listening. People care to the result. But you also see some wackiness. There's um, special charm to it. Exactly. Yeah. A couple of homestands ago in El Paso, we saw a five-ball walk. This could happen and has <laughs> happened in the majors, but it just kind of came to mind that uh, there was this El Paso batter, Eggy Rosario, and on a three-and-one pitch, he took ball four, low and outside. I thought it was ball four. The scoreboard said it was ball four, but the batter just stayed in the box. The umpires didn't say anything. The managers didn't say anything. <laughs> and the next pitch went outside. And during this, I had convinced myself that maybe I missed something. But we watched the video, and uh, you can even check out the GameCast. They had to specially <laughs> enter it. It was ball five. Um, that's what I love about broadcasting games. You never know what you might see that night. I walked on five balls in Pony League baseball in seventh grade, so I'm glad I'm not the only one. <laughs> You're not the only one. And the funny thing is, researching after that, apparently this has happened in the majors in recent years. Uh, there was a whole SB Nation video documentary on YouTube about it, about uh, two strike strikeouts, three ball walks. And I think what happens is there's so many pitches over the course of a season that everyone convinces themselves, I must have missed something. But when everybody does it, um, <laughs> everybody missed something, and that <laughs> they miscounted. So it does happen. He's Tim Haggerty. His book is called Tales from the Dugout, A Thousand and One Humorous, Inspirational, and Wild Anecdotes from Minor League Baseball. I will include a link to that book in the show notes on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, wherever it is that you guys are listening to this podcast. Uh, so you can just click that link and buy it off of Amazon. Tim, uh, do you want to throw out your social media handles or anything like that if you want, if people want to get in touch with you or follow you? Yeah, I'm on Twitter. It's TD Haggerty. Um, I also have an account of some old and sometimes new uh, funny minor league stories called Ooh. Miners Team Names. Um, and back when people thought Twitter was going to die, I set up Mastodon and Post News, but I have no idea what the handle is or my password. <laughs> um, and I kind of just think that we're all going to be on Twitter forever. I think so, too. Yeah. Or I, X. I should say, I should call it. Have you switched to calling it X yet? No, I'm still okay. calling it Twitter. I mean, it's technically Twitter.com. I type in, okay. I don't even know if X.com, what that, I don't even want to know what that leads to. No. I don't want to type that in. Um, I forgot about Mastodon. Oh my gosh. They were hot for like a minute there. It was like November right. or something like that. Yeah, my wife had the best analogy that Twitter's demise might be like Y2K. You were a little bit too young for that, but people were sure that like banks and <laughs> many things were going to shut down on um, January 1st, 2000, but it didn't happen. Yeah, I was born in 1994. Uh, so I was six years, or not even six years old. I was five years old when that happened. I just remember hearing Y2K bug, Y2K bug, right. Y2K bug. And we had like a little stuffed animal that was a Y2K bug. And so I just thought it was like the mascot of the new millennium was a bug. I didn't understand what this was until years later. <laughs> That's funny. I never saw those. 
Uh, I'll, I'll find it. I'll see if I can find a picture of it and send it to you. But Tim, this was a blast. We'll have to do this again sometime. Thank you so much for your time today, man. Yeah, thank you, Jack. All right, y'all. That concludes today's conversation with Tim Haggerty. Was a lot of fun having him on this show. I appreciate his time. Go out and get his book again. Tales from the Dugout, 1,001 Humorous, Inspirational, and Wild Anecdotes from Minor League Baseball. I look forward to getting my copy later today and reading it pretty soon. So um, if you guys enjoyed today's episode of the podcast, please subscribe and turn on notifications. If you're watching here on YouTube, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, wherever it is that you are getting your podcasts, please hit subscribe. And please share this with a friend. Uh, we could definitely, we're always looking to grow our audience. So appreciate anyone who's willing to spread the word about our show. Uh, you can follow me on social media at Jack Vita Show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'll be back again sometime next week talking some more baseball and probably having some more reality TV contestants on this show like we always do. Until then, I'm Jack Vita. Bring in the dancing lobsters. <laughs> <laughs>